one of the big thrills of my life was a what they call a fam trip. Fam trip is a familiarization trip that uh, tourist agencies and the government of Israel provide for uh, pastors and their wives to go to Israel for a week and to learn what it would be like to take tour groups to Israel. And so I think it was 1984, uh, Linda and I found out about a fam trip and we were flown to Israel. We spent a week in the land viewing as much as you could view in a week. And I think, I think the entire trip cost us about $750, not each, total. That was, they don't do it at that price anymore, but that's what was going on. We couldn't let that go. And uh, uh, it was uh, a, an incredible trip. Now, they got 50% of their rainfall during that trip. Uh, and uh, Linda had some terrible headaches and had difficulty with the process. We couldn't get to Masada because the roads were washed out. Uh, but we saw some, some incredible things, and it was the first of several trips to Israel for me. Uh, but I remember distinctly when I went, I didn't want to go and say, I shopped today where Jesus walked. I, you know, I wasn't interested in that. And I wasn't certain how much of a pilgrimage it could really be. But there was one thing I wanted to see. One thing that, uh, as it turned out, the room that we had in the hotel overlooked the building where I wanted to see this thing. And it wasn't the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it wasn't Calvary, and it wasn't um, uh, the Mount of Olives and, or any of those things. It was a place called the Shrine of the Book. The Shrine of the Book is where they house the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in it is a scroll of Isaiah, and a complete scroll of Isaiah, that goes back 250 years before the Lord. And it's uh, the earliest one we had prior to that was around 1200 A.D. So that's quite a difference. And the comparison indicated that with all of the history from 200 years before uh, Christ to uh, the time when the church would split, that text had not changed. And uh, that's amazing how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. So to be able to go into that building where they had that scroll rolled out in this place and you push a button and the light goes on dim so you can see it. And I could actually see an Isaiah scroll that was written and used by God's people 250 years before uh, the Lord uh, was born and, and came. I, that, I was just overwhelmed. I have had a, um, uh, an attachment to the scriptures, um, sometimes more than God's wonderful people, if you know what I mean, uh, for a long time. And uh, it, is, it is, for me, um, uh, I'm a text person. I'm a biblical text person. And that's my starting place, and that's where I return, and, and that's why I'm, I'm so careful about uh, how we interpret and, and speak of the scriptures. Now, I say that because that's part of this issue of the biblical worldview and the mindset. And if you have that first page, I'm just going to briefly do that because that will get us up to where we are today. 
been going through series on the biblical worldview and the mindset. And uh, I've explained that whole idea. I'm actually today going to finish all the foundational stuff. And starting next week, I'm going to say, how do we recover the biblical worldview and what is its content? And so we'll finally get into the stuff that you say, well, what is it? You know, I, I always tell the problem that's the historical approach. How did it go bad and how do we fix it, right? So uh, I explained that... Uh, the worldview is a notion of how we as a people, group, a group of people, understand and experience reality. And our mindset is more the individual commitment to intentional living based on that, on that worldview. And I said that we had uh, several worldviews historically. Uh, the ancient world had the Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian worldview. Those were very distinct, particularly with regard to understanding God and what he wanted. In the pre-modern world, those two were mixed together so that we got a Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. It's important to know that the Judeo-Christian was put into the Greco-Roman. Okay? Um, if I put a uh, Chevy engine into a Pontiac, uh, the car is still a Pontiac with a Chevy engine. Okay? Uh, the culture didn't become Judeo-Christian. The culture remained Greco-Roman, but had Judeo-Christianity uh, mixed into it. And you need to see it in that context. Uh, then there was the modern world. I talked about that where a secular, no longer a pagan option, but a secular option developed. And it was founded on science and reason. And then the postmodern world we got a relativistic, ahistorical perspective that is based on feelings and appearance. And that's why marketing works so well. So at present, because the ancient worldviews and the pre-modern worldviews, with very few exceptions, are gone. But what we have are the modern worldviews and the postmodern worldviews. And I want to just remind you of those real quickly as to what they are so that you can... Uh, be aware of them. And as Mike said, you'll begin to notice people who fit into these categories. And you'll find some people who are eclectic in them as well. Modern secular worldview. Science is the primary source of knowledge. Natural and social science can give us a better understanding of reality and human nature when it is combined with clear, rational thought and reason. As we get better knowledge through research and experimentation, we can make a better world, a more perfect world that will not have war, crime, poverty, sickness, maybe even the elimination of death or putting it off. Man is basically good and we have to fix the circumstances because they create problems. It's the Star Trek view of reality. Uh, and we can just make a better world if we get the right knowledge and, and, we, and we work together. Okay? Can't we all just get along? Okay. Second one is the liberal religious one. The liberal religious one is science is our primary source of knowledge. Natural and social science gives us our best understanding of reality and human nature when it's combined with clear, rational thought and reason. Now that's identical to the secular one. They add this part religiously. The Bible and religion can enrich our lives, kind of like art and music. But it must be kept subject to science and reason. It can provide kind of a moral perspective and a hope beyond death, and it's good for that. But man can, through science and reason, make a better and more perfect world without war, crime, poverty, sickness, and maybe death. 
because we're basically good. The circumstances can create a... If we get the government and the church together, we can solve the problems of the world. Then there's a conservative modern religious worldview. And that one says the Bible, when interpreted correctly, using reason and critical thinking, is our primary source of knowledge and truth. It gives us information about God's intent for the creation and the nature of man. Mankind is not capable of good without God and salvation. Science and reason can be helpful, but they must be kept subject to biblical truth. We cannot make a better world. At best, we can try to hold it together. What, what Jews call tikkun olam, to repair the world while we're waiting for the kingdom to come. I'll talk about that uh, at another time. Um, but the Messiah will bring a better world and the next creation will eliminate war, crime, poverty, sickness, and death. Very different worldview of the, of the uh, conservative religious. Now, two postmodern worldviews, they're almost identical. It's just one believes in God and one doesn't. The postmodern secularists, there is no objective truth. My experience and my feelings are valid. You may not question or criticize me. If you agree with me, I am confirmed that I am right. And if you disagree with me, you're involved in hate speech, and I'm still right. Because I just feel that way. Okay? And if you want to see that worldview, just go to any high school or college campus or Starbucks, and um, you will see it. Postmodern religious. Uh, there is no objective truth. My experience and feelings are valid and true. Therefore, my interpretation of the Bible is as valid as yours. If you agree with me, I am confirmed. If you disagree with me, you're a judgmental person. You're a Pharisee. Uh, God speaks to us in circumstances and by our feelings. So the ultimate thing is God's called me to do this or God told me to do this. And you can't argue with that okay, without being judgmental. Now, as I said last week, none of these are biblical worldviews. Everyone who has it on the religious side think theirs is the biblical worldview because they use the Bible in some way. But for the most part, this is not the biblical worldview. It is the Greco-Roman modern and postmodern worldview that uses the Bible to reinforce. I'll give you an example of that. Among the liberal Christians, there is a belief that gay marriage uh, may be acceptable to God. And so they will use Bible verses to say, in Christ, there is no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, and there it is. Okay? And on the conservative side, they will say that the man is the head of the house, and the head of the house means he's the authority. Okay? Um, and, and that's it. And, you know, world without end, amen, everybody's got a Bible verse. And everybody can, can claim that God's on their side. When the reality is, the Bible tells us something and we're to get in line with it, not get in, trying to find the verses that match what we want. There are a lot of sermons going on this weekend where the pastor has already figured out what he wants to say to the people and he goes through the Bible looking for the verses that seem to say that. That is not biblical preaching. It's preaching and it uses the Bible. In most cases, these worldviews use the Bible, but they are not biblically based. And I'll talk more about that next week. 
Um, but we have to talk about one last thing before we move to what is the biblical worldview and how do we reclaim it. And that is that we are living uh, in, for the first time in Western civilization, a post-Christian era. We talk about post-Christian America, and I need to talk about what does this mean to be in post-Christian America. So, let me say uh, that there is a great debate going on among Christians and academics as to whether the United States was intended to be or ever was a Christian nation. And if you go into the talk shows, and if you read the books, there's a group that says America is a Christian nation, and there are people who say America is not a Christian nation. And then there are people who say the founding fathers expected this to be a Judeo-Christian nation, and then there are people who say no, they were deists, and they didn't want a, a Judeo-Christian nation. Okay? This whole discussion is problematic, and I'll tell you why it's problematic. We don't have a clear definition of what we mean by a Christian nation. Okay? I have people all the time say to me at Cal Baptist, well, I thought this was a Christian university. And I say, I don't know what gave you that thought. The university didn't ask Jesus into its heart. If we have a problem, we don't use Christian principles to solve it. They bring in the lawyers and we do it the way the world does it. It's a university that is predominantly by and for Christians in some sense. But it, it's not theologically based. In other words, it's not a theocracy. I mean, I joke about that. Yeah, it's a theocracy in Dr. Ellis's theo, right? <laughs> but that's not true. The reality is, it's, it's, it's hard to define what that means. Okay? So, if we mean by a Christian nation, it's a theocracy. God is the president or the king and everybody is subject to his commandments and his law. America has never been that. Now, what about a Christian-based nation? That is a, uh, a nation that is based on Christian principles. Well, it's pretty clear that many of the principles found in the founding documents of the United States, have their origins in the biblical text. But there's also clear evidence that they have their origins in the Greco-Roman notions of democracy and other kinds of things. Okay? And so in, the best you could say is that the United States was an attempt at a Judeo-Christian Greco-Roman uh, uh, mix that was uh, compatible with current understandings of Judaism and Christianity. Third option. This is the one that uh, uh, many people are beginning to talk about now. It is a nation that was heavily influenced by Judaism and Christianity. In other words... It's not like the founding fathers sat down and said, what Bible stuff can we bring in? But because they had a strong context of their own that was Judeo-Christian, those things came in. So, for example, 
um, they, the things that they thought were good in those frameworks, they incorporated them. There actually was some discussion among some of the founding fathers to have the official language of the United States be Hebrew. And one of the forms of the seal of the United States that I think Benjamin Franklin wanted was the scene of Israel coming out of Egypt as the Exodus. Because they saw themselves as enslaved in Europe and coming to a new promised land. and they were, So clearly there are thematic overtones that were found in the founding fathers that come out of a Judeo-Christian kind of context. And then the fourth one. And this is the one that I tend to hold the closest to. Though the third one makes a lot of sense to me. And that is that this was a nation of Christians. Um, and that Protestants and free church Christianity found a haven here from per- persecution by Catholic and high Protestant Christianity in Europe. Okay? And, and they wanted a place where their form of Christianity could thrive unhindered by a state church, which was the rule in, in Europe. So, certainly the founders attempted a free church in a free state with a free economy and a free press. This was part of a more or less self-governing people using limited government based on law with checks and balances uh, between the various parts. And while not specifically Christian or biblical, it established a country where Christians and Jews could practice their religion with relative freedom. And that means that the influence of Judaism and Christianity would be able to permeate much of what's going on. So we see the Ten Commandments in, in, in courts. Uh, we, we have uh, prayers done before Congress. A lot of things happened that were, were basically a, a, a Judeo-Christian default in the same way that while there were French-speaking people here and Spanish-speaking people here, the default language ultimately became the, the, the English language because of the connection to uh, most of the people that were the original settlers and uh, formers of, of the nation. The modern period uh, struggled with making the world better, and this country was born in that modern period. Um, but in the 1920s to the 1960s, Conservative churches began to retreat into evangelism and refrain from any political activity. Now, that was in part because in order to be a nonprofit religious organization, you had to agree that you would not engage in political activity. And therefore, because taxation without representation, if they can tax the churches, then we can speak to the political issues. So, They gave us tax exemption for two reasons. One was, we don't want you involved in politics. And second, churches were doing good things in the community and the government didn't have to provide for those things. So we'll encourage churches to form in our places, have properties and not have taxes and those kind of things. But what happened was, as the fundamentalist modernist debates that I talked about began to happen, the more conservative churches started moving away from the political arena and the government, because they believed that the 
the home and the household and the congregation was the primary institution, the liberal churches moved more and more into cooperation with the government and political situations. And that's why you saw a lot more of the more liberal denominational churches involved in political action, and you saw almost none among the conservatives. In the 1970s and 80s, conservative Christians began to see something they didn't like. There was a move towards this postmodern world and a, uh, a, a approach to social issues that made many conservative Christians feel anxious. And so conservative Christians, especially evangelicals and Baptists, uh, free church types, began a push to involve themselves in the political arena. Jerry Falwell, James Kennedy, and James Dobson, among others, were part of what began to be called the moral majority or the religious right. It was a political movement, a political movement to try to, if you will, take America back for Christ. The idea was that a Christian America had lost its way and by Christian involvement in politics and particularly national elections, a Christian America could return. One of the first persons elected under that notion was President Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was known for being a born-again Christian and a Southern Baptist. And so the belief was, if we get Christians in politics, then politics will become better. Okay. Uh, that didn't work out quite as people thought. Uh, then there was big discussion over whether or not Ronald Reagan was a Christian. And when he bought a place in Bel Air with an uh, address of 666, he had it changed to 667. And the evangelical said, perfect, he's one of us. <laughs> uh, Clinton, a Southern Baptist, was constantly getting flack from the Southern Baptist Convention that he wasn't quite doing what the conservatives wanted him to do. Uh, eventually, we got uh, Bush 42, and uh, again, an evangelical. And then, of course, we had the same kind of discussion going on with President Obama. Is he a Christian? Is he not a Christian? Do we vote for him? And the struggle for evangelicals was, do we vote for Mitt Romney, who's a Mormon? evangelicals had historically called Mormons cultists, so he doesn't qualify as a Christian, so what do we do? I mean, this is what goes on when the church starts thinking politically instead of biblically. Okay? When you, can't, when you think that God is a Republican and Jesus was born in Oklahoma, you're beginning to miss the biblical worldview. Okay? And I got terrible flack for once saying that Jesus wasn't born in Oklahoma. I think I'm correct. You know, at Christmas we don't sing O Little Town of Bakersfield. I mean, we do, you know, it, 
this is not the American thing. It's a it's a Jewish thing that we've that's been extended to us. But uh, America saw itself as the American Christians saw themselves as the very people of God in a major replacement theological notion, and then they became politically active. Now, Christian nationalism became the battle cry in the political area of America, and the backlash of that has been very strong and consistent. Conservative Judaism and Christianity, that is, those who see these scriptures as actually God's word, are now being systematically moved to the margins and away from the public arena. Because, as John says, brethren, they are of the world. Therefore, when the world speaks, they hear them. We are of God, and they don't hear us. Okay? So when Christians try to do the American political thing, because we're of another spirit and another kingdom, we're not as successful at it. It doesn't work. We get a backlash. People are always saying, well, how come the Muslims are not being treated the way the Christians are being treated? There's a reason for that. Uh, you cannot... You, you, there is a deliberate and intentional pushback against Christianity in this country for both good and not-so-good reasons. And to ignore that, and to ignore that part of it is our fault. We were dumb in a no-dumb zone. Supposed to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. We were dumb as an ox and like a bull in a china shop. And the, and the culture has pushed back on us. So, what's happening now is we are being moved to the margin and out of the public institutions. Prayer removed from school, Ten Commandments removed from the courthouses, uh, nativity scenes taken away from public parks. Uh, let's just move Christianity out of that out of that place. Now, Christian nationalism is problematic as a doctrine anyway. And many of you know that I am not a Christian nationalist. I don't believe that God ever intended for the Roman Empire to be Christian, for the European nations to be Christian, or for America to be Christian. I believe God wanted that in every nation there would be Jews and Christians. He scattered Jews into all the nations, not to make the nations Jewish. He put the gospel into all the nations, not to make the nations Jewish, but to draw disciples from the nations, from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue. If we try to make America Christians, we run into the political uh, quagmire. My goal is to make Christians in America, Christians, which is not the same thing. That's called Christian diaspora. So, not all Christians have seen America as a Christian nation. This minority view is that while America provides a, a free zone for religious expression, and thank God for that, it is not a Christian nation. Now, the most obvious group to do this are the Amish. The Amish have lived in America, they are Americans, but they live as though they belong to the kingdom of God in an enclave. And they actually call the rest of the Americans the English. Right? And they think of themselves more associated 
with Israel and America more associated with the world. Okay? And so they separate themselves in that sense. And they do it in an enclave and they do it in a pretty significant community. And that has its problems. But that's an example of a diaspora mindset and not a national mindset. Uh, the other type of this is a monastic approach. And you will find that throughout the history of Christianity where Christian groups move into smaller communities or move into somewhat secreted communities uh, to try to protect themselves from the broader context um, that's out there. Uh, and there are parallels to this in the Jewish notion of diaspora. So the diaspora is the idea that there's a holy God, a holy people, and a holy land. And the Jews believe that if they are in Eretz Israel, they are in the land, then they, that's a different existence than if they are outside of the land in diaspora. This is one of the driving forces for the re, uh, um, reformation of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was the idea, they weren't thinking of politics, I mean they weren't thinking of prophecy uh, so much as they were thinking of protection. If an American gets hurt in another country, there's an America to defend them. But if there's no Israel, no nation of Israel, and Jews are persecuted, what happens? So after the Holocaust, the drive for a nation, and Europe wanted to get rid of the rest of the Jews, the drive was to put Israel in that area that we know as Israel today. Not a prophecy, a political expediency. Now, does it have prophetic overtones? It has prophetic overtones. But it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. Okay? Uh, like many Christian uh, prophecy buffs like to say. So, uh, this, is, this idea that if you're not in Israel, you are in the diaspora, but you await the day when all Israel will be brought, brought back, is found throughout the Jewish uh, mindset and, and liturgy. And you guys know this because you've been to many Passover Seders. And at the end of the Passover Seder, what is said? Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. That's the ancient hope of the return of the Jews to the promised land and the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. So they know that they are in America, but not of America. They are in Canada, but not of Canada. They are in France, but not of France, right? That's the idea of being a diaspora. If you say, I'm in America, and America is Christian, I'm home. If you say, I'm in America, America is Christian friendly, thank God, but I'm not home, this, this culture is not my home, I'm just passing through. I'm waiting for the regathering of Israel and we'll be gathered and then the nations will be the nations of our God and His Messiah. Then you have a diaspora mindset. And the Disciple Center is decidedly and intentionally a diaspora congregation. We do not seek to make America Christian. We seek to make Jews and Christians in America fully committed to the Scriptures and the Kingdom of God. Now, with that in mind... Uh, let me talk about 
what post-Christian America is. Uh, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you don't have to turn to it, you've got it memorized. Paul says, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, having talked 11 chapters of the plan of God in dealing with Israel and dealing with Gentiles and bringing them together and all of that, he finally in chapter 12 says, now I beg you, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice. He's using sacrificial terms. I want you not to be a dead sacrifice on the altar, burned up in that Holocaust offering. I want you to be a living sacrifice. In other words, everything in your life is dead to you and alive to God. And that's what that notion is. That's what baptism is. I have gone into the baptism waters, death to myself, and I've raised to walk in newness of life in obedience to Christ. Taking off the old man and putting on the new man. Now, you guys know the problem. The old man rises every morning and we have to take him off again. You know that? And probably at noon and, you know, it's a, it's a constant battle. But that's, that's it. Waiting for the time of the resurrection. Paul says, be not conformed to this world. Don't go into the peer pressure. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, you need a biblical worldview. You need a biblical mindset. Or you will not be able to uh, avoid assimilation into the culture. Jews are worried about only one thing in diaspora. Well, two things. There are two things that threaten a Jew in diaspora. Persecution. And they have a history of that. Right? We'll kill you or we'll curtail you. Right? Or their second big fear is that their children will grow up and not be Jewish. Assimilation. Okay? American Christians now live in a culture where. Your children may be persecuted for being Christians, or worse, they may grow up to not be Christians. Because assimilation is very easy in a post-Christian world. That's why I decided my last years of ministry were going to be in private practice with young families having children to desperately try to get them to put that faith in their home. Because we may not have the privilege of doing this. And a Sunday school class is hardly of any value at all. The hours spent in home talking of God's word when you rise up, when you lay down, when you eat, when you walk by the way, when they have a question, is what need, that's the, that's the biblical model for raising your children in the faith. Okay? And I'm desperately trying to do that here, and most of you are at least committed to that, even if you're not fully practicing that, right? And that's a problem. Because it's not your commitment that will keep your kids from assimilating. It's your practice. Okay? So, and we'll talk about that. So, being in the world and not of it is problematic. Do we become Amish? And have horses and carriages? 
That's, that's not being in the present, <laughs> right? It's different to say, I'm not in the world, I'm not in the present, you know? Do I say, well, I'm going to put on the clothes of the first century, and I'm going to live in a house like the first century, my house will look like a Bible land's house, right? Uh, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, but the issue is keeping the balance between one of two extremes. And the church has always done that. Okay? One extreme, the crusade. We'll just take over everything and make it us. Okay? Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. We'll just take this world and we'll control it. Okay? Now, Christians don't want Islam doing that, but a lot of Christians want to do that. That's one extreme, the crusader. The other extreme is the monastery. Bye. God loves you. Turn or burn. You with me? Those are the, the, the extremes. We're sometimes accused of that. Right? The biblical balance is we gather together as family, privately. We know one another. We trust one another. We care about one another. We, we reinforce our faith. We walk out in the world differently. Jesus was all over the place in public. And people said, look at him, he's eating with sinners. And he's doing that stuff. But he never got assimilated. Because he knew before whom he stood. So, we retreat into community to reinforce. There are two places where our community meets. In our homes and in our congregation. And then we go out into the world and live as light and salt in that world. So that people ask a reason for the hope that's in you and you tell them what it's about. And if they say, gee, I'd like to escape this world too. You say, come with us. You can walk with us. You with me? That's the model. Now, the post-Christian America that your children are walking in, and if you don't immunize them to that, they will get the disease. Okay? And most Christian churches and Christian schools are carriers of post-Christian America. Because they're trying to be relevant so they can be evangelistic. And when you're relevant to be evangelistic, okay, when you're seeker-friendly, when I become, when I get tattoos so I can reach the tattooed, and then I say, you know, we're not supposed to have tattoos. I go, why do you have one? Well, I was trying to reach you. So let's go here. And I'll say, I'm not acceptable here, right? I thought I was acceptable just as I am. You are, but you can't stay that way. Well, you didn't tell me that. That's why Jesus said, count the cost. We've watered down this whole gospel thing so that we're not teaching them the gospel. We're giving them an ollie ollie oxen free. Get out a purgatory free card. Just say the magic words and you're one of us. We'll put you on layaway and wait till the Lord comes. And it's all grace. That's not grace. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's, that, that is not the gospel. 
So post-Christian America is a move from religious values to secular values. When I was a child, and that's a long time ago, okay, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, everybody told me the same thing. People who went to church, my family didn't go to church, but they said, Bruce, don't lie. Be a good boy. And what they meant by good was usually biblical stuff, right? And then I'd go to the teacher, and the teacher would say, Bruce, don't lie. Be a good boy. And it was the same stuff. And the neighbor would say the same thing, and a cop would say the same thing, because the Christian, the Judeo-Christian values were very pronounced in the public arena when I was growing up. I grew up in an era where anybody in the neighborhood could spank you, and that was the first spanking, because the word would get home, right? Very different world. People, we don't grow up in that world now, right? Uh, so now we live in a world where anything goes and you can blame it all on God. It's a facade of biblical values, but it's not biblical values. Post-Christian America is a move from rugged individualism where a man and his God and a man and his family and a man and his job uh, were really about his walking uh, with God. To radical individualism, where now I can do whatever I want. And if I don't ever want to leave home, that's my parents' problem. What do you mean you want me to actually come to work at eight? Okay? I don't do work at eight. Right? Uh, uh, you know, um, I'm happy to take this class, but you know, I have a busy life, so I probably won't be able to show up. So if I miss anything important, send it to me in an email. And I actually get those things, right? Radical individualism is, I'm the center of the universe, and the whole world must accommodate to me. It's narcissism. By the way, they were thinking about taking narcissistic personality out of the DSM. And the reason was, it's so common now that it's normal. Not a mental illness. It's an American condition. Post-Christian America is a shift from reliance on God and family to a reliance on government. Post-Christian America is a shift from truth to feeling as the basis of reality. Post-Christian America is a shift from a melting pot, which is a Christian idea. All tribes, kindreds, tongues will all be united in God, a melting pot idea, to we'll have all kinds of different groups and we'll just tolerate each other. My favorite story about pluralism. Uh, I was giving a, a paper at... Uh, Berkeley, Berkeley. Um, it's where anthropologists, we anthropologists go when we die, right? Uh, I was given a paper uh, on uh, Messianic Judaism, no, marginaliz marginalization. And a uh, professor from, uh, I think it was UCLA, came up to me and she says, Oh, Dr. Stokes, I, I love your marginality thing. And I, I, I really think that's good. I want to tell you something we're doing. She was in education, EDD. Uh, I don't know why she was at the anthro meeting. I want to tell you what we're doing in, in, for California. And we're trying to get it through Sacramento and it's going to be wonderful. And I said, okay, tell me about it. 
She says, we're going to go to ethno-specific education. I said, that's a neat word. What does it mean? She says, all of the black kids will go to black schools. All of the white kids will go to white schools. All the Catholic kids will go to Catholic schools. All the Jewish kids will go to Jewish schools. All the Hispanic kids will either go to a Mexican school or a South American school because, you know, they're different. I said, yeah, I'm aware of that. I said, now, what's the curriculum? She said, they're only going to learn their own language, their own history, and their own uh, uh, value system. I said, then what? She says, then in junior high, they'll all come together in one school. And I fell off the chair. I was laughing. I thought, that, I thought no, it's, she had me. It was a joke. You know? And she said, what are you laughing at? I said, you're not joking? I said, you're going to have, my junior high had gangs. You're going to have a bloodbath. You're going to have the war of the worlds going on there. That's the dumbest idea I ever heard. You have to be a doctoral uh, professor to be that stupid. And of course, our conversation was over. Ethno-specific education. And that was pushed in the education thing for a while. They finally backed away. But, But that's the extreme of pluralism. The extreme of melting pot is you can't have any differences. Right? There are problems with the extremes of both of these. We have to have a balance between pluralism and melting pot in this culture. But post-modernity, you can can be whatever you want. So in the 60s, when we were regrouping, I I said, what do I do? Everybody was finding their people. Now, I'm Native American Swede who knows nothing about either. I don't hate myself for what I did to myself. Uh, I don't know anything about being Swedish because my grandfather came here and said, we're done being Swedish. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear that stuff. We're Americans now. And the Native American side didn't, didn't take well either. And so I don't, know, I don't know if we took scalps. I don't know what that means. Okay? Um, we certainly, uh, I, I don't want to go there. So, uh, so I, where do I go? Right? I actually had a greater affinity with African-American culture because of my connection with the trips, right? So what happened in the 60s is we began to say, you can be whatever you think you are. So if you think you're black, you can be black. Now, you think that's silly? We now have psychological gender. You can be whatever gender you think you are. And if I'm male on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and female on Tuesday and Thursday, I'm fluid, that's allowed, and that's a category. So your children and grandchildren are going to grow up in a world of psychopluralism that is unbelievable. Post-Christian America. So, what do we have to do? We have to re-establish Christian institutions, particularly the home and the congregation. And I want to give you one last verse, and I'll shut up. I've gone long again. I, Mike will be the only one happy. Uh, okay. Second, Second Timothy 3. So I want you to uh, pay attention to this text. I will try not to comment on it, but just read it. And if it doesn't describe 
the direction of postmodern, post-Christian America. I don't know what does. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, they will hold to a form of godliness. They'll act religious. Although they have denied its power, you are to avoid such men as these. Because among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, or weak teenagers, or weak men, weighed down with sins and led on by various impulses. Boy, there's America. Always learning. They Google everything and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They are like Janus and Jamres who opposed Moses. Those are the guys that threw down their sticks and turned them into snakes too. So these men are opposed to the truth. They are men of depraved mind, rejected in, regarding, in regard to the faith. They will not make any further progress. and They'll just keep in chaos, right? Their foolishness will be obvious to all. He means to all of us. Just as Janice and Chambry's folly was also. Now for you, you are to follow my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my perseverance. My persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Paul says, I, I, I'm taking flack here. What persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All that scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproving and for correcting and for training in righteousness so that the person of God may be fully adequate, equipped for every good work. Scripture and a biblical worldview is necessary. The battleground is the minds of your children and your grandchildren. And if we don't regain a biblical worldview and a biblical mindset, which I'll discuss next week, we will lose them. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace.